This morning we continue our time together as we discuss the love of God. The love of God is one of those aspects of God's character that simply cannot be taught academically, theoretically, or as I have stated numerous times, theologically. The love of God is meant to be experienced in the life of the individual. And once experienced in the life of the individual, the love of God is so compelling and will change the individual radically from the inside out. To experience God's love is like to experience nothing else that one has ever encountered here in this world. And the love of God is one of those treasures that we have as believers in Jesus Christ to carry us through the most difficult experiences of our Christian lives. For we as Christians, we know that we are not exempt from the hardships of life, are we? We struggle with pain and suffering. We struggle with illness and sickness. We, we struggle with rejection. We struggle with everything that the world struggles with, but we do so with the hope that our Lord and Savior is walking every step of the way uh, through these difficult times with us, and in those difficult times, allowing us to shine the light of the realization that Christ is exactly who he said he was by sustaining us, by giving us a peace that surpasses all understanding at those times. The love of God, I don't believe, could be stressed enough in the churches across America. But I'm specifying the love that the Bible talks about. Not the love that this world has created. A love that has been defined by our world through social standards is incomparable to the love that God has for us. In the most basic form, the love of this world is still self-seeking at the essence of its nature. But the love of God is self-sacrificing. It's unconditional. It has you in mind as the individual that he desires the greater for. The love of God is something that simply cannot be met with and experienced and not leave a lasting impact upon the individual in which who has encountered it. And yet today we struggle with the love of God and the assurance of it. We struggle to understand that the love of God is not something that's going to be retracted from us in a moment of crisis. We struggle with the idea of the love of God continuing with us from the time we've come to saving faith in Christ to the time he calls us home. For sure, something in the world that I'm going to encounter is going to cause some type of separation from the love of God. Surely, uh, my own personal failures is going to lead to condemnation before this God and therefore sever me from the love that God has for us. And the reason we struggle with this, the reason that we are so insecure in our love uh, for God and God's love for us is because today the love that we see all around us in the world is so fragile at best. The word is thrown around so loosely that it's lost a lot of its value. Today, people are in love and fall out of love so easily, you wonder how long it's going to last. 
And today we carry that into our Christian life and we have those same fears, we have those same wonders, we have those same concerns. Is something going to separate me from the love of God? Is something going to cause that love that God has for me to fail? Am I going to do something that's going to sever that love in some way, shape, or form? So many of us have experienced from individuals who were supposed to have loved us harm, hurt, unlovingness. Individuals that have been abused by parents, children who have been abused by those who were supposed to love them unconditionally, husbands and wives committing themselves in matrimony to one another only to find out infidelity has occurred or irreconcilable differences have occurred and now the love that they once had, the committed and so forth has been shattered by such an event. The love that's all around us is so fragile. It is so conditional. And we draw that into our Christian experience. And we say, well, the love of God must be the same. And today I tell you and I herald it to you that God's love is so superior to that of the world that they should not even be compared one to the other. God loves you in such a way that is incomprehensible to you unless you've experienced it for yourself. But we weren't the only ones wrestling with this idea of a fragile love. For those new believers in the Bible did also. They have been told that by faith alone in Jesus Christ, by simply believing in Jesus Christ, a relationship could be reestablished and reconciliation between enemies could take place. Simply by believing in Jesus Christ, I can now have that relationship with God the Father once and for all and experience the love of God for myself. The love first and foremost demonstrated by the sending of Jesus, God the Father's only Son, that whomsoever shall believe in Him shall not die but have everlasting life. That was God crying out to this fallen world, I love you. I'm going to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. I'm going to pay the penalty that you have incurred. I'm going to take it upon myself. I'm going to pay that penalty of death and allow you to receive eternal life through the one in whom that penalty has been paid. And God demonstrates his love from that moment going forward in the life of the individual. As you come to Romans chapter 8, Paul the Apostle in the first three chapters was articulating very clearly that the whole world is in condemnation before God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There are none who are perfect. No, not one. And there's nothing that we can do to get ourselves out of this position of condemnation before God. There's no good works that we can do that would release us from this condemnation. There's there's no sacrifices in which I can personally make. There's no um, personal uh, experience that I can uh, go through that will allow me 
to personally get out from underneath the condemnation under the umbrella of God. But then in verses, chapters 4 and 5, Paul writes about the one who can release us from that condemnation and justify us before God the Father. And that is the person of Jesus Christ. Christ lived a perfect, sinless life before the Father from the time he was born to the time he died. When he went to the cross, he died for the sins of the world, not his own, but our sin. And as he hung on the cross, there were three hours of darkness where God the Father placed all the sin of the world upon his shoulders, separated himself from the Son, and then the Son died under the weight of that penalty of sin. But not for himself, for he himself was perfect. He was a substitute for our unrighteousness. He was a substitute for our failure. He was a substitute for our sin. He took it all. He took every bit of it upon himself and paid the price, paid the penalty for you and I. Now, if you and I will believe in him by faith, because on the third day, God the Father rose him from the grave, death could not hold him because he was perfect demonstrating that the sacrifice in which he has made unto the Father has been made once and for all, and now any who believe in him can eliminate their sinful debt before God the Father because those sins have been paid for in the person of Jesus Christ. And once those sins are paid for, as the Bible articulates it, as God the Father looks through the Son at us, it as is it's as if we stand there before God the Father as if we had never sinned. I don't know about you, but that's remarkable to think of, isn't it? Because of His justification of us, His atonement of us. Now, if I were to stand there in and of myself, my, I would be riddled with sin, and I could not stand before a holy God. I am 100% guilty before a holy God. But Jesus Christ, when I stand there before God the Father in complete guilt of all of my sins before Him, I can just ha hang my head in shame because there's nothing else I can do, nothing I could ever do could warrant the dismissal of the penalty of guilt due to those sins except one thing. It's at that moment that those who are in Jesus Christ realize that the Son stands from the right hand of the, of the Father and walks to our side and then stands before us and says, Father, they're one of mine. Look at them through me. And the moment God the Father looks through Christ, He sees us perfect. Sees us perfect before the Lord. Not only has Christ washed away all of our sins, past, present, and future, but he has also robed us with his righteousness. It's called the imputation of righteousness that Christ passes on to us. If I were to simply be forgiven of all of my sins, I would have then a zero-sum gain before God. 
perfection doesn't lie just in the dismissal of all the sins that I've committed against God. Perfection also comes in doing all the things that God has asked me to do. There are sins of omission, things that I uh, am not supposed to do, or I'm supposed to do and I don't do. And then there are sins of commission, where I do with those things that I'm not supposed to do. So not only does Jesus Christ cleanse us of our sin, he also robes us with his righteousness, and therefore the Father can look through him and see us perfect. Now that's a positional standing before God. Here on this earth, I'm still a work in progress. I haven't gotten there yet, and I won't until I stand before him for all eternity. But apart from God... I have no one to be my advocate. I have no one to stand in that place. And therefore, I am guilty before God the Father. And Paul says, you have been justified by Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone and have received that justification by faith and faith alone. And then he talks about the process in which God then begins to transform us into the image of Jesus Christ because he loves us too much to leave us the way he found us. And so he starts cleaning us up and he starts bringing us back to what we were originally supposed to be before the effects of sin and death distorted that image so horrendously. It's called sanctification. And as Paul moves into chapter 8, he is now anticipating a question from those who are him. Is faith sufficient to bring me to the final conclusion? Is faith enough, Lord? For the Jewish people, please understand that their entire lives revolved around feasts and sacrifices in which they had to make on a daily, weekly, and yearly basis. The Gentile individuals who came to Jesus Christ understand that many of them, if not most, if not all, served pagan gods with their hands and devotions. And now Paul is saying, no, faith alone in Jesus Christ is sufficient. But they were questioning that. Is that enough? And so he writes to them, and he begins in verse eight, or chapter 8, verse 1, for first and foremost, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Internally, we may condemn ourselves before God, but in Christ, there's no condemnation. Because when God the Father looks through Jesus Christ, how does he view us? Well, he views us as if we're perfect. And therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. So when your heart turns on you, When you start to doubt and when you begin to feel that you're unworthy of the salvation in which God provided for you through Jesus Christ and you have received it by faith, Jesus says, no, I'm with you. Don't let your heart condemn you. I stand before you, even though you don't feel like it, even though you don't think you're worthy of it, because you're not, I'm with you either way. But then there was also the external pressures. So when you come to verse 18 of chapter 8, he talks about the moment of their, the temporary moment of their personal suffering. Because often our circumstances can cause us to doubt and to question the love of God. As we go through difficult times as individuals, we may say to ourselves, well, how could God ever love us if he ever, if he allowed such a, uh, a circumstance to uh, uh, come within my life? 
And Paul said, listen, what God is doing in those circumstances is that he is conforming you into the image of Jesus Christ. And what happens now is going to pale in comparison to the glory that you're going to have for all eternity that has been prepared in you through these experiences. And last week we read that all things work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But there's that doubt. Oh Lord, I have this positional standing before you that appears to be secured in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And it appears that I can hold with assurance through faith alone that the work that you have started in me is the work that you will complete in me. But Lord, does that mean you will love me the entire time I am with you? Though I'm positionally secure and assured of this positional standing, is your love going to continue with me for always? It's one thing to be positionally before a king justified, but it's another thing to be positionally justified before a king who loves you, isn't it? And so Paul now comes to one of the greatest assurances of the love of God found in the Bible, starting in verse 31. Let's read it together. He begins, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? It is a as the psalmist wrote, he says in verse 36, for, you, for your sake we are all being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angel, nor ruler, nor things present, nor things to Come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will separate you from the love of God. Paul begins in verse 31 by saying, What then shall we say? He's asking us to consider all that we have read up until this point and to focus upon what he is now going to say that follows. He wants to ask a question, a series of seven questions being asked by Paul that rhetorically should ring throughout our mind and, cons and cause us to uh, consider and to provoke us to thought concerning what he is saying. Number one, if God is for us, who can be against us? Let us ask that question. If the God of all creation, of all the universe is for us, who can be against us? Please, shout it out. No one, no one nothing, absolutely nada 
My dad is bigger than your dad, that's all. Okay? Nothing can be against us. It's a term that the Jewish people use to assure themselves of victory before going into battle in the Old Testament. If God is for us, who can be against us? King Asa, when he was ready to come against the Philistines, he started moving and he said, it is nothing for God to deliver them into our hands. It's a piece of cake. If God is for us, who can be against us? When all else were fearing under the incredible weight of uh, appearance by the individual, uh, you know, um, Goliath, David said, come on, you guys, you're all wimps. Let's go and find out if God's going to give him into our hand. That's the Eric Bentz translation of the Bible. It's coming out soon. Uh, Pictures are involved and scratch and sniffs, but he does. The Hebrew version of wimps, he's like, come on, you guys. Who is Goliath in the light of God? But see, like so many, they were fearful and they were weighing their circumstances upon their own personal ability and not that of God's. They were looking at their circumstances and saying, this is too much for me. I can't handle it. And God's saying, I don't want you to. Let me cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. I can't see myself coming through this. I'll get you through it. I can't overcome this. I'll help you overcome it. I'll go before you. I'll fight the battle for you. Just know that I am with you. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Absolutely nobody. And therefore, who will, for he, look at this, who did not spare his own son, but gave up for us all, How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If he's already given us the greatest gift ever in the person of Jesus Christ, what is it for God to give us anything more? Right? If If you believe the first verse of the Bible that God created the heavens and the earth, you can believe everything else that follows within the Bible. If God has given you the greatest gift in the person of Jesus Christ, then what else is so great that God cannot overcome and will not give to you? What is so great? Say you were going in to buy an engagement ring and you really love the one that you were proposing to. So you were willing to spend a little bit of money on the ring, 150, 200 bucks. Say you purchase a $10,000 engagement ring. And it's beautiful. And she's just going to be absolutely floored by it. Make sure you have the defibrillator with you because she's going down afterwards. And you purchase this $10,000 ring. And then all of a sudden the individual, the salesperson that was assisting you in the purchase of the ring says, listen, I'm going to give you a case for that for free. (gasps) Not a a case? A a little box that I could put the ring in and give it to her? Yeah. You mean I don't have to? Yeah, you can take it out and I'm going to give you this little cardboard box. You already bought the $10,000 ring. How big is the case in comparison? 
Jesus Christ has been given to us. The greatest need that we ever had has been fulfilled. Then God is graciously saying, what else is too big for me to do on your behalf? Let's put it in perspective. If I sent my only begotten son to save you, how much more am I going to give you as you walk with me in our time together here on this earth? That's what Paul is saying in those exact words. As the psalmist wrote in Psalm 56, 9, he says that my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. Psalm 118.6, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? But our circumstances can often try to mislead us and deceive us and cause us to doubt that fact. In the Old Testament, when Jacob heard that his son Benjamin had died, he was distraught. And then when he found out that after his sons went to Egypt to try to escape the famine, that the younger son was being summoned by the ruler of Egypt, this is what he said, the younger son being Benjamin. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. And Simeon is no more. Now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. He lost sight of the reality of what God was doing. For the ruler of Egypt was, it was Joseph. He didn't realize what God was doing. He looked at his circumstances through the light of his own personal ability and drew all the wrong conclusions. But as one wrote, he says, the believer needs to enter into each new day realizing that God is for him. There is no need to fear. For his loving father desires only the best for his children, even if they must go through trials to receive his best. For I know the plans that I have for you, he writes, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not of calamity to give to you a future and a hope. And Jesus demonstrated that by first and foremost coming and saving us. And now God is saying, I am for you. Who there can be against you? The writer of Matthew, Matthew stated that if God is concerned about the birds of the airs and the lilies of the field, who are you in comparison? You are so much greater than these things. And then Paul leads then to verse 33 when he says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That's you, those chosen by him. It is God who justifies Who is to condemn? For it is Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. That is what I'm referring to when I'm talking about God placing himself in front of us before God the Father in a position of intercession for us. And then he asks the question, if God has done all of this for us, He's justified us. He has released us from the condemnation through the person of Jesus Christ who is now interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Now please notice in verse 35, there's a grammatical issue. The question is who? Speaking of a person, something, someone. But then he lists for us several circumstances in which one can find themselves in. These are not persons. 
These are not individuals that can separate you from the love of God. But the question is, who then shall separate you from the love of God? In the Greek language, there is a methodology of interpretation built on what's called a syntax graph of the language. And in that syntax graph, verse 35 and 36 are joined together, or I should say verse 35 in its entirety, who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then bulleted as meaning a subpoint to that particular question is shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, danger or sword. Now these are circumstances that Paul is listing. So who is the who? The who is you. These circumstances that you may find yourself in, even though they may cause you to doubt and they may cause you to waver and they may cause you to fret and to worry, they may cause you to fear, they are not sufficient for separating you from the love of God. It is God's understanding of our personal frailties at this point, for it is God who will sustain us in that moment. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Absolutely not. Distress? No way. The harm of persecution or famine? Absolutely not. Nakedness, meaning that I don't have the appropriate clothing to come before God? No way. The danger, meaning of perils that one finds themselves in, or the sword of execution? Even though I may be faced with these things and they cause me personal fear, they cause me concern, I begin to question and doubt. God is saying, it's still not going to separate me from the love of God in any one of these situations. For who is capable of bringing a charge? No one. Who is able to condemn? No one. Who is able to separate us from the love of God? No one. From the very beginning, God has shown that he is for us, not only in Christ coming to die for us, but now interceding on our behalf. When he was speaking to Peter, Satan apparently wanted to take Peter, as Luke 22, verse 31 and 32 states, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he may sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Or the writer of Hebrews who talks about this intercession that Christ is doing on our behalf wrote this. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, that is Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he was without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in our hell and our time of need. And then Paul writes in verse 36, a statement out of Psalm 44, verse 22. And it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. The righteous man, the righteous woman has always suffered persecution under the weight of the world. Jesus says that they are going to hate us because they first hated him. 
And this was a verse that the Jewish individual drew out of the Psalms to remind them of that fact. Now, please understand that both Jewish minds and the Gentile minds at that time had a very pragmatic relationship with God. When God blesses me, I must be in his favor and he loves me. When I go through difficulties and hardships, God must be angry with me and his love is therefore been tempered. But is that true with God? God is saying, don't look to your personal feelings to determine the fact that I love you. Don't go to your circumstances and try to draw from them certainty if I love you or not. Know this. In fact, look at what he, Paul says next. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. This is an issue of perspective. Let me help you understand what I mean by that. When Jesus Christ was arrested by the religious leaders in the Gospels, he is taken, he was brought before a a sham of a trial, false witnesses accused him falsely, and they also fabricated their testimony. He was then taken before Pilate, he was taken before Herod, brought again to Pilate, found to be innocent of all charges, and yet he was then placed before the people who cried out for Barabbas rather than Jesus because they believed now that Jesus was not going to be their liberator from Rome. When Jesus was taken away and he was brutally beaten and then taken again before the people and then taken out to the cross to be hung there on the cross, the religious leaders felt that they had succeeded in their endeavor. They had stopped this insurrection that was taking place through the person of Jesus Christ. Those who were opposed to Jesus looked at him hanging there in a place of all humility, thinking that now they have been vindicated and they see that he was nothing more than just another false prophet that plagued the nation of Israel. People mocked him. They scorned him. People belittled him. They cried out, oh, if you're so such a savior, save yourself now at this time. But then he gently spoke these words, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Every one of those perspectives were wrong. Because at that moment, Jesus Christ was not a victim. He was a victor. He won. And at that moment, all of hell shuddered because they realized that something had now taken place that they had not anticipated. We often can look at things with the wrong perspective and draw the wrong conclusion. And often it is due to the fact that we are looking at our circumstances through the lens of our own personal ability, our own personal understanding. When in actuality, these trials and troubles and tribulations that I face, when God sees me through these things, I am more than a conqueror in Him. Your perspective may be, oh God, I don't think you love me anymore. And God says, I love you too much to leave you the way I found you. And that's why I allowed these things to bring you into that image of Jesus Christ for the glory that it will render for all of eternity. And then Paul ends with these words. In verse 38, for I am sure. I stand here completely confident 
in what he is about to say next. Paul writing this letter was in a city called Corinth. It was a dreadful city. It was a city that was plagued by uh, all kinds of corruption and unrighteousness. It was a wicked city to say the least. It was a dangerous city. The book of Acts tells us that when Paul got there, he was greatly afraid. But then the Lord met him there and reassured him. And now standing in that position there in Corinth, in the light of the fear in which he's experiencing, he now states, in the midst of that fear, I now know this. I stand here confident of this. And what is it? Check this out. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, that is, uh, demonic forces, nor things present currently, nor anything to come, nor powers, that is, physical earthly rulers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, underline that, nor anything else in all creation, no matter what you feel, no matter what you experience, you can know this for sure. will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, guys, can separate you from the love of God. So don't succumb to your feelings and your emotions and to determine that God no longer loves you. He loves you. Don't allow your circumstances to overwhelm you and to cause your heart to doubt, question, and to fear. God loves you. And if God is for you, then who can be against you? No one. It's time that we start walking in that assurance. It's time that we start walking in that victory. It's time that we show the world a peace that surpasses understanding when all of our circumstances are telling us to fear and to worry. It is time that we show that our God is living and on the throne. And though he is not here with me personally and physically and, and so forth, he is interceding for me each and every day. That when I fail, it is Christ who lifts me up in front of the Father and says he's one of mine. When I collapse in fear, it is Christ who gathers me once again to give me that courage and confidence and allow me to stand in front of the Father because he says he's one of mine. When I begin to question or doubt the work that God is doing in me, it is at that time that Jesus reassures me and says, listen, that work that I have started in you, I will finish. Just believe. Trust me. I will see you through it. Nothing will ever separate us from the love of God. My favorite, one of my favorite pastors, Warren Worsby, wrote this. A review of this wonderful chapter shows that the Christian is completely victorious. We are free from judgment because Christ died for us and we have his righteousness. We are free from defeat because Christ lives in us by his Spirit and we share his life. We are free from discouragement because Christ is coming for us, and we shall share in his glory. 
We are free from fear because Christ intercedes for us and we cannot be separated from his love. For there is no condemnation. There is no obligation. There is no frustration. There is no separation. If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen. Praise the Lord.